Good morning, Eastview Christian Church. That picture must have been years ago. I look like the president when he got out of office now after starting a church. I don't look as young as I did there. And I want to thank Nikki for preaching my sermon already. Thanks for, um, I got nothing left. That's what she just gave you everything. So it's good to be back. I was here a couple weeks ago, right before you started this journey through the Gospel of John. I'm excited to jump into that journey with you this morning. And uh, as Nikki did mention, we're going to look at this famous event from the life of Jesus when he turns water into wine. And when Tyler sent me the set of verses I was going to be preaching, I was pretty sure he did so knowing that I used to be a college pastor here on staff. Because this event is a quintessential passage that all college pastors have to know because every college student, Christian or non-Christian, knows this passage because they use it as a justification to drink heavily on the weekends. And so I had many conversations with college students and they went something like this. They said, well, it's not a big deal that I was out at some frat party because I mean, remember Jesus turned water to wine at a wedding? That was a big party. And it wasn't like it was a little bit of water and a little bit of wine. It was a lot of wine. So what's the big deal? You know, and I was like, well, I, I, I tend to believe John probably had another reason for writing this in the Bible. Uh, than for you to use it as an excuse to drink more. Uh, but uh, you can keep with that interpretation, but I'd like to give you another one to consider as well. So maybe Tyler just knew I was very familiar with this passage. Uh, this is why he assigned it. Or just the fact is that I am just thanking God because I love this passage because it to me is so much more than an excuse to drink more. It, it really in these 11 verses contains what I believe is the entire summation of the Christian life. And in particular, right in the middle of this set of verses, verse five, are probably the five most significant words that all of us need to know in order to live out the Christian life. And so if you would, I'd like for you to stand with me and I wanna read John chapter two, verses one through 11. I invite you to stand in honor of God's word, as well as anticipation of what God would want to speak to us today through his word. For while this event took place a couple thousand years ago, what the Lord would have for us today, I think is still just as powerful and pertinent. So John chapter two, verses one through 11. says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby, six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Will you pray with me? God, in this time, will you speak to our hearts? God, would you reveal to us, God, just the parts of this event that are still so pertinent. What I do believe, share with us the summation, God, of what it looks like to know you and to follow you. 
And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, our hearts be open to receive. And God, we thank you in advance for what you want to do in our lives through this text. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So this summer, on July 29th, my wife Jamie and I will celebrate our 17th wedding anniversary. Um, I'm pretty excited about that, and that's a big deal. And so uh, it's crazy how much time flies so quickly. But if you were to ask my wife what she thinks about our actual wedding day, I'm confident she would tell you it was one of her favorite days of her entire life. And not just because she married me. Um, I mean, I hope that's one of the reasons. But, but she would tell you that we absolutely loved that day. It, it was just so much fun. It went so well. But if you were to ask her if there's anything that she would change about that day, I know she would tell you, I wish I could remove the embarrassment that I felt towards one particular family at the wedding. And this one particular family that she felt this embarrassment and shame for and from was all my fault. (laughs) Like, it was all my fault. Because we had to ask this family to come to the actual ceremony, but then to eat a different dinner at the bar at the reception because we didn't have enough place settings for them any longer but they could then come and dance with us after they had eaten somewhere else. And the reason it was my fault is because I think our cap was like 225 and we sent out all of these invites. And then I remembered last minute, all these other people I hadn't invited that I still wanted to invite. And so I took the liberty of sending out more invitations to which my wife was like, that's not a good idea. Like we're gonna have a problem if we go over the quota here. And we did. So which she said, this is your fault. You need to fix it. So I had to look through the list of who had RSVP'd and see which family would probably be least offended by this. And um, I saw Kevin and Vicki Lawson's name on that list. Some of you know them. They may be in the service. They attend this church. And, and I love Kevin and Vicki. My wife didn't really know them that well yet. But I, I figured if I asked Kevin, he would uh, be so gracious, which he was. And he's like, man, I'm just so thankful that you, you feel that close that you could feel like you could ask me about doing something like that. I'm like, yeah, Kevin, thanks, man. Um, so, uh, but I'm pretty sure Jamie wanted nothing to do with running into the Lawsons at our wedding because there was like this cloud of what she perceived embarrassment and shame because she's like, how did you, how do you ask someone like, oh, thanks for RSVP, but actually, can you like pay for your own meal? Cause we can't have you in ours, but then you can come dance with us. And, and we didn't even have alcohol at our wedding. So that's no fun. You know, like, it's like, come on. Like, so there's this cloud that was there 17 years ago but it pales in comparison to the cloud and shame that's hanging over John chapter two here in Cana. Now there is a potential social catastrophe that is about to take place if something is not done to rescue people, particularly the bride, the bridegroom, as well as the families associated and the host of this ceremony because the wine is running out. And in the Middle Eastern or ancient Near Eastern context, you, you gotta know that that weddings weren't just a one-day thing. They usually lasted from five to seven days in celebration. And in that culture back then and still in that culture today, hospitality is one of the highest virtues that you were responsible to provide enough food and drink for the entirety of that celebration. And if you could not come through and be hospitable to provide that, in this honor-shame-based culture, it would result in shame being now attached to you and your family. And in particular, wine was a big deal if it were to run out because wine was kind of the primary drink. It wasn't a luxury drink like it is today. 
because of the scarcity of water and the impurity of water, there, were, there was a lot of wine that was drunk. It's kind of like the, the main thing that you would consume with a meal. And what that meant is wine began to be associated with this notion of life and sustenance, joy, favor. And even in a spiritual sense, this, this idea that wine represented the blessing of God, that as, as wine flowed freely, the blessing of God was in abundance upon you. So for the wine to run out was a big deal. And it was going to be a catastrophe for this family and it would be a stigma attached to them for a long time to come unless something was done. So the embarrassment and shame my wife worried about, which never came, this is way more of a dire situation. But before I get into when the wine runs dry, let's start off here in verses one and two, just to kind of set the context. And we're told that on the third day, now John loves to be kind of like a a treasure hunter and give you clues along the way. There's a literal third day here where he's talking about this is the third day after Jesus has first encountered some of his initial disciples and spent a day with them, as you talked about last week in John chapter one. But he's also using this as kind of like a clue for, it was a literal third day, but there's another third day that I wanna kind of put in the back of your mind. And hopefully most of us are aware of what that significant third day is, which we'll talk about more in the end. But it says, on the third day, this wedding took place in Cana and Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So Cana is this small village and it was located about eight miles from Nazareth, which was Jesus's hometown. And so what we are to know, or what we, a lot of scholars would say is that, that Jesus and his mother Mary likely had some type of friendship, kinship, relationship with either the bride or the bridegroom or, or something because of the close proximity of the, of the villages. Meaning we know that Jesus and his disciples weren't just wedding crashers coming to like get a good meal and, and drink some wine. And so this wedding is taking place and, and we're not sure what day in the set of events that this happened, probably more towards the end. But at some point, the, the joy and the celebration that comes from these two individuals becoming one and being married quickly becomes really scary because the wine runs dry. And Mary is the one who discovers this first and she makes sure to come to her son. Verse three says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, referring to Jesus, they have no more wine. Which like, if this was in a movie, be like, dun, 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 dun. Like this is like, things are about to shift in this moment. And when Jesus hears this, he'd be fully aware of what this meant for this family. The social stigma that'd be attached to them, the shame that they would now be the the banter of different gossip and conversations. Can you imagine, like, can you believe that they didn't actually have enough and didn't prepare in advance? People would look at them perhaps at the the local market and be like, oh, that's the couple that that didn't have enough wine. That could potentially be some relationship uh, fragmentation that takes place just because people would feel so embarrassed. And spiritually, there would be maybe this, this notion looming over that this family and this newlywed couple was not in God's favor or blessed because the wine had run out. In many ways, you could say that, that they would be sensing and feeling this notion of emptiness and fear. And I think that's where I wanna start with the resonance and connection with us in here this morning is I believe that if there is a sentiment that could be written and hang over most of our lives 
for many of us, it would simply be this idea, there is no more wine. Whether it's right now or at different points in your life, you can resonate with this feeling of, oh no, or shame, or guilt, or this feeling of emptiness, that there is no more wine. Perhaps you currently find yourself emotionally exhausted and wondering where you're going to gain the energy just to make it through the rest of this day. And you're like, man, there's just no more wine. Perhaps you find yourself, whatever news channel you decide to watch, all of them decide to promote doomsday headlines. And it just makes you feel like that the, the world around us and our culture is just, just imploding. And it just makes you feel like, you, what, how are we gonna get through this? And it just seems hopeless and helpless. And it's like, there is no more wine. For some of you, your marriage, it feels like there's no more wine. Some of you are single in here and you've been hoping for a long time to find that someone. And the online dating is just a disaster. And you're like, there is no more wine. Perhaps as parents, you're working as hard as you can to make ends meet and you're exhausted, but you don't feel like you're gaining the traction or the momentum or even the respect that you feel like that you deserve and what you put effort towards. And it just feels like there is no more wine. Maybe you're a single parent here and you're trying to juggle so many things by yourself and you're just like, I don't know if I can keep these balls up in the air much longer. There is no more wine. Maybe you're a student, middle school, high school, college, and you just feel like that as much as you hope to have vibrance in life, anxiety seems to just haunt you Maybe some of the years of what are supposed to be some of your best years in high school were taken from you because of the pandemic. And it just feels like there is no more wine. Or maybe spiritually, right? You just feel like God is distant. You've come to church, you've been coming to church, you're doing the thing, but it just feels like you can't get rid of this cloud of shame. You constantly feel guilty, or you feel like that God is not for you. You feel like based upon how life is unfolding, God is actually against you. And you're just like, I don't know what to do with this. It just feels like there is no more wine. And wherever you can tap into that feeling of helplessness and emptiness, this is the fear that's looming over those that are aware of what's about to happen when everyone finds out the party the wine is gone. The wine is gone. And so Mary knows that probably the only person who can solve this is her son. And so she comes to Jesus saying, hey, hey, we, we got a wine problem. And, and she probably pulled him aside because she didn't want to make a big deal about it. And, but then Jesus' response to his mom doesn't initially, when you read it, sound very Jesus-like. You're like, who talks to their mother this way? Right, I mean, this is, so she tells him, hey, there's no more wine. Verse four, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, if it's that type of intonation, then you're like, Jesus, you need to go to like some like respect-based classes. You don't call your mom woman, right? If my kid called my wife woman, be like, we got a big problem. Um, 
thankfully, this is a translational issue. This is actually more, if you look at the original language, a term of endearment and respect. <laughs> he's not like showing up as mom here. And I don't think he's like grouchy. I think he's just like, mom, I don't know why you involved me. My hour has not yet come. And as you're gonna see throughout the, the gospel of John, this, this notion of hour or time is directly referenced to when he is going to fulfill his ultimate commission and mission from his heavenly father, which is to die on the cross in our place. And he's very aware because at this point, he has not done any miracles. And so his reputation is not ahead of him yet. He's about ready to launch into his public ministry. And so if he decides to intervene in this moment, the clock starts ticking to him getting closer to his hour because people are gonna start to know oh, you're that guy. And there's gonna be excitement about him being the Messiah, but there's also gonna be a lot of opposition, which will cost him his very life, which is why the father sent him to begin with, to save our lives. So he says, the hour has not yet come. But it's like, Mary's like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm still your mom. You, I, I'm taking over right here because she, in verse five, said his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary, here's Jesus' concern, like it's not my hour yet. And she's like, oh, okay, whatever, whatever. And she looks at the servants and she's like, do whatever he tells you. And I don't know if there's more significant and important words, five words that may be the most important words spoken in human history, especially in terms of carrying out and living out the Christian life. Do whatever he tells you, right? Do whatever he tells you you. I mean, think about how much different our lives might look if we actually listened and heeded Mary's advice in that. Think about how much regret we might not have, relationships that would be preserved, or relationships we wish that we didn't have a trail of, words that we could take back. What might our culture or our nation or perhaps even our world look like in terms of just its current state if we were to take a step back and instead of like doing what we want to do, simply say, do whatever Jesus tells you. It's unbelievable advice. And so Mary gives this advice to these servants. And it's these servants in this story that I think we can find the greatest resonance with. Because it's important to know that these servants, their reputation is at stake as well. Now, they're lower on the social totem pole, of course. But one of their responsibilities of being the servants at this wedding is they are supposed to be able to inform the master of the banquet when there is the possibility of a shortage of food or drink. And because now there is no more wine, this means these servants have failed big time in their responsibility. And if heads are gonna roll and shame's gonna be stuck on the bridegroom and the bride and their families and the master of the banquet, you better believe that heads are gonna roll in the direction of these servants and they're also going to be accountable in this moment. And so they're desperate. They're wondering, how can we get out of this? Like, I don't, I don't wanna be known as the servants who completely messed up this wedding, especially if this is the wedding of a high priest. Like, this is like, oh my goodness, like you're, you are in so much trouble. And so what do the servants do? What do the servants do in this moment? How do they respond to Mary when she says, do whatever he tells you to do? Well, Jesus then gives them this set of instructions. 
Verse six says, nearby stood these six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it over to the master of the banquet. You gotta put yourself in this setting. They are desperate. They are looking for rescue. They don't want to have shame be put upon them or anybody else. And they're told to now look to Jesus, remember, has not performed a miracle yet. All they know is maybe this is a friend from eight miles away to the bride of the bridegroom. He doesn't have like healing on his resume yet or, or awesome teachings or any of that kind of stuff. All they know is his, his dad was a carpenter, he's a carpenter, and that's about all we know. And yet here's Jesus, and what he says in the midst of a wine shortage is he gives attention to these six stone jars, which we're told are massive, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So let me just, and to make it equivalent, like we're talking about about 180 gallons. That's like 10 kegs worth. See, now somebody's like, oh, I know what a keg is. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Cool, okay, cool. And it's a ton. It's a ton. But the problem is these six stone jars have nothing to do with the wine. These are not wine containers. They're containers for water for ceremonial washing. And so first off, they're told you need to fill these stone jars with water, which if it's 10 kegs worth of water, they don't have hoses back then. That's gonna take some time. I don't know where the, the, the local pond's at or water, so I don't know. So first off, Jesus tells them to go do something that's gonna be extremely time consuming and they don't feel like they have the time to do it. Much less than he says, Oh yeah, and then I want you to draw some of that out and take it to the master of the banquet. To which you're like, uh, uh, first off, Jesus, these have nothing to do with wine. These are like kind of like COVID vessels. You know, we all use hand sanitizer all the time. That's what this, the Jews would use. They, they would use this to, to keep washing their hands to remain ritually pure. So I'm not really sure why you want us to somehow fill these large stone jars up when we need wine, but we can go to the empty vats where the wine was at. How about we start there? So he's telling them to do something that takes a lot of time and also something that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Ever felt that way in terms of your walk with the Lord? Because in this moment, these servants have a couple different options. One, do whatever he tells you, obey him. Or another option is they could educate Jesus. And let Jesus know, like, hey, um, excuse me, sir, uh, <laughs> you're a little off on this one. Or they can just ignore them all together and be like, you're crazy, bro. Like, stick with carpentry. We'll try to figure this out ourselves." And isn't it interesting that those oftentimes are the same three options that we have in our life when it comes to when we hear God speak or we hear the things that God calls us to in our life? We can listen to Mary and do whatever he tells you and obey him fully. Or we could perhaps negotiate and educate the son of God to make sure he knows what he's really asking us because maybe he's not in the know on this one. Or we could um, just ignore him. And sadly, I think many of us choose that middle road. Like we, we would love to take the professor hat and educate Jesus on why what he said is not really what he meant. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think about your own life. 
Think about the things that, even the, the sermons you hear and the teachings that, that, that come to you, the ways that you read or the things that you hear from the Holy Spirit in your own time. Just think about the ways that we constantly excuse away what Jesus tells us to do. Jesus says, hey, you know, I want you to be faithful, to give first, save second, live off the rest. I love for you to be a generous person, to be a good steward. Start with 10%, give that money away and watch what happens. And you're just like, uh, thank you, Jesus. But did you see the inflation rates? We are in the midst of an inflationary cycle, an economic downturn, Lord Jesus. I don't think you realize that right now. So I understand the principle of generosity. I'll do that, but I'm not doing to the level you want. I mean, but you understand, right? Because, you know, this is, it's just hard times right now. And so we're making sure Jesus is aware of that. Perhaps it's in the notion of staying faithful and committed in your marriage. And you're like, uh, you seen the way she talks to me? She is, he doesn't give me the attention that I need. So yeah, 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 I'll, I'll stay in the marriage, but I don't, I don't know about staying faithful. I mean, like <laughs> this marriage, I mean, we're, we got the contract, but it ain't a long time ago, Jesus. I'm not gonna be fully present and like give my best to this anymore. Come on, Lord, you know that, right? You saw that. So can you still bless it though along the way? Perhaps it's to help someone in need. You're like, uh, Jesus, they're homeless. They're scary. They're gonna waste the money I give them. They might even attack me. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, thanks for telling me that. Jesus calls us to forgive someone. You're like, um, can I educate you on this one, Lord? Did you forget the offense that they did to me and what that meant to me and my whole family? You really want me to just like pardon them? Like, come on, like seriously, like there are certain things I can forgive, but this, this one crosses the line. Like, come on, Lord, let me, let me tell you what I should do. Like I'll kind of like graduate towards forgiveness eventually, but not right away. To which he's like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I forgave humanity. Or perhaps it's, hey, I want you to stay pure and not have sex until you get married or not move in together. Whoa, Lord, like this is like the Western world and we're in the 21st century. We, people don't do that anymore. And we can, we can still honor you and we can still love you, but like, come on. Oh, it doesn't really matter, Lord, what I look at or what I listen to or what I watch or I scroll through or what I post. Nah, no, I'll be fine. That wouldn't impact me, God. I mean, I can look at some of the stuff, but not like the really bad stuff. No, 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 no. It's not a big deal if, if, I, if I prioritize my relationship with you primary, even coming to church, because there's other things, there's activities and my kids got stuff. And so like, yeah, you're, you're still number one, but like, you know, like my life's not gonna fully show that, but, but trust me, you're still number one, God. I mean, I can keep going. And, and, and some of these are pulled from my own life. Right, so these servants are being asked to do something that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And they could choose to like stop Jesus in this moment and explain to him, these six vessels are not used for that. These over here, that's, that, that'd be helpful. And so what do they do? What do you do? How do you respond when God calls us to things that sometimes we don't fully understand or our culture doesn't fully advocate. Thankfully, I love 
the end of verse eight and the start of verse nine says the servants says they did so. They did what he said. They, they listened to Mary, do whatever he tells you to do. They, they trusted in this moment. It says they did so and the master of the banquet then tasted the wine that had been turned, or the water had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, but the servants that knew who had drawn it calls the bridegroom aside. It's like, whoa, where'd this come from? Like, you know, normally we, we serve the, the good wine first or we get the Napa Valley on the front end and we get the barefoot on the back end. But like you, you went a different direction. You went like Napa Valley on the end. Like this is so much better. He's amazed. And what it makes me realize is like this had to be such an incredible step of faith for those servants to actually do whatever Jesus told them to do, even though they didn't understand what was going to be the ramifications on the back end. And we have so much to learn from that, right? I asked myself, when did the water turn into wine? You, you ever thought about that? Because there's a lot of places that they could have been like, okay, we started off in the whole like obedience, you know, direction, but this is crazy. I mean, did the water turn into wine when they were like pouring in the water into the stone jars? And as they were watching, they're like dumping it in and like it's clear and then it goes red. And they're like, oh my goodness. The text doesn't seem to indicate that's when it actually transformed. So, so was it when they went and they kind of had like another vessel and they, and they dipped into the stone jars full of water and as they dipped in and they pulled out, then all of a sudden the clear water in the stone jars had become red and they're just like, oh my goodness. This is crazy. Or did they really experience the craziness of like, they, they dip in the, the vessel to, to draw out and it's still water. And now they have to start walking to the master of the banquet. And they're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Or as they're walking, does it all of a sudden like transform in front of them? And they're like, did you just do that? They're like, this is amazing. Or was it when they're like, oh, this is so social suicide. Like they begin to pour it into the master's cup at the banquet. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Did you? I mean, you can just see their giddiness. Whenever it turned from water to wine, the relief, the rescue, the confirmation, that doing what he tells you to do is the best thing to always do. And the moment that they did what Jesus told them to do, it brought about the best for them. And it also brought about the best for everyone else around them at that wedding. That will preach people. When we choose to do what he tells us to do, it always in the end will result in the best for you as well as the best for those around you. But you still have to start with doing whatever he tells you to do. And it blew away the master of the banquet. I mean, he's like, this is crazy. And we're told there at the very end, John 2.11, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. What a day of rescue, a removal of potential shame and guilt. Jesus coming through. Jesus showing he can be trusted when he calls us forth. All of this is in this 11 verses, this event in Cana. 
I told you at the beginning that I, I believe that this passage is kind of a summation of the Christian life. I just want to walk through that as we close, just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page here. We are all no more wine people. All of us are no more wine people in need of rescue that comes by way of transformation and the filling of God. Scriptures say all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us at some point have recognized how we did not hit the mark and we cannot hit the mark. And we are empty in need of rescue. And the hope for our rescue is the same hope for their rescue in Cana. There was no one else. Those servants couldn't have come through. The bridegroom, the bride, master, no one else could have come through in that moment besides Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth. But as he began right in this moment to unveil the son of God, the Messiah, the only hope for rescue, the only way to be filled, the only remedy for being a no more wine people is through Jesus. And it's so important to take notice that in this passage, Jesus saw them, he cared for them, and he actually chose to act on their behalf. And that is still so true for us today, that Jesus sees you, that he cares for you, that he's unbelievably madly in love with you, and he wants to act on your behalf. And the way that he definitively has already acted on your behalf and on behalf of all humanity was on that other third day. When Jesus, when his hour did come and he was handed over to authorities and he was crucified, he who was without sin still became sin so that on the third day when he overcame death that came by way of sin, that he might help us become the righteousness of God. On that third day, he said, I saw you, I care for you, I'm choosing to act on your behalf, I am madly in love with you, and you now can be no longer water, but I'm turning you into wine. I am all about you. He sees us, he cares for us, he chooses. When he, we are in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our guilt, in the midst of our embarrassment, he says, in those very moments, I'm taking on the shame, I'm paying the guilt, and I'm going to be the one embarrassed on your behalf when I'm hung naked on a tree, crucified, to give you right standing back with me and my heavenly father. We must though choose. Choose to receive this rescue. And that comes by way of doing whatever he tells you. You do not become wine from water without making the choice to come only to Christ. And to choose then to take him at his word and to live out his word and by his word. The transformation initially comes when he says, all must repent and believe. To repent means to change your thinking, to turn in a new direction, to no longer live thinking you know what's best and you're gonna educate the son of God and, and whatever. Like, no, no, no. You turn and you look to him as the only answer and you choose to believe. That's what these disciples did here. It says the first time that they believed in him. And then as we continue in our journey to live out the Christian life, it is constantly doing whatever he tells you. 
doing whatever he tells you. And so how will we respond today? How will you respond? All of us have a response. For some, perhaps it is to believe for the very first time that there is a God who loves you, who sees you, who cares for you, has chose to act on your behalf and wants to transform you from water into wine and fill you to the brim with his presence now and for forever. And you need to place your trust and believe in Jesus Christ as the source of that filling and the remedy for your sin. For some in here, perhaps one of the responses is just to give thanks because you are now wine. You were water, now you're wine. But you, you need to just take time to give thanks that Jesus paid the price and rescued you from yourself. And then perhaps for all of us, the response is simply a willingness to take inventory. To take inventory of the areas of our life where we might not be doing whatever Jesus tells us. And maybe see that that's why our life is the way it is because we've been trying to educate the Son of God or blatantly ignore the Son of God rather than faithfully obey the Son of God. I'll close with this quote from author and pastor. His name's Louis Giglio. He says this, the distance between the time you hear God tell you to do something and when you actually do it, that is a summation of your entire life. When you hear it and then you do it, the distance between the two completely defines you. Will you pray with me? God, I ask in this time that Lord, that you would help us draw near to you. We praise you for being a God who sees us, who loves us, who cares for us, who acts on our behalf. God, help us believe and continue to believe and give thanks to you for that. And Lord, also may you give us the courage and the power through your Holy Spirit to do whatever you tell us. We surrender and realize you are the one who knows all and your ways are best. And so God, may we walk in that. God, I pray for salvation today for some and the working out of the salvation for others. But Lord, let us not walk away from here today without responding somehow. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.